The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Hey there, geeks! Welcome to this installment of Wizards Half, aka episode 12.5. I'm Adam. These are the mini episodes where we cover the features and content we didn't have time for in our main episode. Michael's been doing a great job bringing you his renegade style of freeform podcasting in these solo outings, but he's got some deadlines to meet, so me and my trusty note sheet are here to bring you more fun from Wizard Magazine issue 12. So first up, we had a great conversation talking about Batman the Animated Series, but there were a lot of characters being reported in there or instances of use of gadgets that we just didn't recall from that first season. But luckily, our faithful listener, Eric at Illustrator Eric on Twitter reached out to us because he had a lot of these answers in a book of his called Batman Animated by Paul Dini and Chip Kidd from 1998. So first up, there was a character called Maggie Page that they said was going to be a love interest for Alfred that we didn't recall showing up, but Eric says here, Maggie Page was a love interest for Alfred in the episode Eternal Youth. Paul Dini had said in an interview that they wanted to introduce some drama by having characters other than Bruce and Alfred be at Wayne Manor, but she didn't present too many story possibilities. That sounds to me like they wanted her to be the new Aunt Harriet, who is dating Alfred. So the other question that we had was, does Commissioner Gordon ever use a bat phone? Is the bat signal showing up? It just felt like neither of those tropes from the 1966 series made their way into the animated series but Eric explains the bat signal made its first appearance pretty late into the first season. Bruce Tim said he didn't want to use it feeling it was too campy but realized it'd get repetitive if Batman just randomly showed up at Gordon's office whenever he needed information. Then he goes on to say one episode prior to the bat signal introduction featured a telephone Gordon used to contact Batman that he kept in a locked desk drawer but unlike the Adam West bat phone it is nondescript looking no red glow or cake safe to protect it (laughs) so again eric thanks for doing that research thanks for filling in those gaps for us it looks like they did bring those plans to fruition Coming up next here, Collecting Comics in the 90s by Pat McCallum that we've been delving into in most episodes. We just didn't get into it this time around, but this is usually, I've found, kind of a gripe session on Pat's part, is that he will start to talk about something that just is irking him in the comics industry. And in this case, he's talking about crossovers. Yes. So he's mentioning how back in the day when you were doing crossovers, it was things like, you know, for DC Crisis on Infinite Earths, why? They're trying to, you know, slim down the multiverse. They want to turn it into a situation of, okay, we have a continuity that everybody can follow. So there was a point with that. But his concern now is that almost every crossover that's happening is designed only to sell books. It doesn't seem to have a creative 
purpose to it. He says, it's really a shame that this is happening, but it's just part of the bigger problem with comics today. Most comics are candy-coated with holograms or whatnot, and even those without a gimmick hyped up, and then are just a big letdown. What's even worse is that the new generation of comic readers don't seem to know any better. Comics are selling better now than they ever have. What does all this mean? Most comic buyers are more interested in buying pretty crap than quality comics. If everyone who's bellyaching about the state of comics wants it to change, they better change their buying habits. The only way to tell the companies what you want is to start buying what you like, instead of being content with being force-fed with a glow-in-the-dark gatefold spoon. Ooh, so there's some vitriol there from Pat. And that may be the case, however, I think there was a, a stalwart group of comics buyers out there that weren't the kids our age that wanted all the awesome covers and wanted to be part of that collector's market that were actually on the internet at this time. So if you go then to the letter from our editor at the beginning of the magazine, there's a really interesting piece of fandom, which would obviously become the main way we talk about comics nowadays. But back in 1992, this was revolutionary. So this is Patrick Daniel O'Neill. He's the editor and here's what he says. One of the newest and most high-tech ways to keep up with the comic book industry today is through computer bulletin boards. Bulletin board systems, or BBS, are networks of computer users from all over the country and the world who share a common interest, in this case, comics. I belong to two of the biggest comics BBS going, the Comics and Animation Forum on CompuServe Information Service and the Comics section of the Science Fiction Roundtable on Genie, which is operated by General Electric. Now, the funny thing about that is Genie... General Electric, they always shorten themselves to G-E, and that's what they spell Genie with a capital G, capital E, then N-I-E in lowercase, which I think is pretty hilarious. But anyway, what he's mentioning is that the Genie SFRT has recently given us all an opportunity to show how an older, more discriminating crowd differs from the -the run-of-the-pack comic shop Denizen by instituting the Thunderbolt Awards for Excellence in Comics in 1991. The members nominated in several categories, and the final ballot was just released. So again, this is a group on the internet saying everybody's buying crap comics. Let's celebrate the quality comics. So they made their own awards ceremony. So here are the nominees. For Best Writer, Peter David, Neil Gaiman, William Mesner Lobes, Alan Moore, and Art Spiegelman. For Best Penciler, Eduardo Barreto, Brian Boland, Norm Brayfogle, Alan Davis, Dan Jurgens, Frank Miller. Best Inker, Brian Boland, Willie Bleiberg, Mark Farmer, Jamie Hernandez, Dennis Janke, Wendy Peeney, Roy Richardson, Ty Templeton, Scott Williams. Best Colorist, Brian Boland, Laverne Kinderinsky, Julia Lacramont, Tom McCaw, Steve Olaf, Daniel Vazo. Best Letterer, Janice Chang, John Costanza, Albert D. Guzman, Todd Klein, Tom Orczezowski. Best Continuing Series, Excalibur, From Hell, Hawkworld, Incredible Hulk, Justice League America, Sandman, Suicide Squad. Best Limited Series, Black Canary, New Wings, Book of Magic, Captain Confederacy, Concrete, Fragile Creatures, Green Lantern, Emerald Dawn 2, Infinity Gauntlet, Robin 2. Best New Series, Aquaman, Black Hood, Deathstroke the Terminator, Magnus Robot Fighter, Sin City, presented in Dark Horse Presents. Most Improved Series, Dr. Fate, Excalibur, Incredible Hulk, Legion 91, X-Factor. Best Graphic Novel, A Small Killing, so far released only in a British version, Batman Holy Terror, Batman Full Circle, Batman 
Man, Master of the Future, and Epicurus, the Sage 2. Best Character, Blue Beetle, Death, Dream, Hulk, John Constantine, Superman. Best Team of Characters, Doom Patrol, Excalibur, Justice League of America, Legion of Superheroes, Suicide Squad, and X-Factor. Best Reprint Volume Collection, From Hell Number 1, Legion of Superheroes Archives Volume 1, Mouse 2, Sandman, Preludes and Nocturnes, Sandman, Dream Country. They also go into Best Issue and Best Arc Plotline. But what I think is very interesting, and Patrick Daniel O'Neill himself mentions this at the bottom, notice anything interesting and surprising in that list? How about the near total absence of, quote, hot titles, creators, and characters? No X-Men of any kind, no Lee, no Liefeld, no McFarlane, no Wolverine, no Cable, no Lobo. If you find yourself unfamiliar with any or all the people or comics listed above, maybe you owe yourself the chance to investigate them. Next month, I should have the final winners in the first Genie Thunderbolt Awards. So yeah, I, I do find that very interesting. A lot of these people are either in independent comics, or they're in DC Vertigo titles, or things of that nature. So some of my personal favorites that just jumped out at me is in terms of noticing names, definitely Concrete. If you guys have never checked out Paul Chadwick's Concrete, it is a fantastic series about a guy who is a speechwriter for a politician who ends up going on a hike, gets abducted by aliens, and his brain is put into a giant body made of concrete that is alive and he can move. So it's not at all what you would think. This is not an adventure comic. It is not an Aliens comic that is merely the setup. All it is after that is a dude dealing with being a celebrity in the real world in this giant body and what can he do now that people are so interested to get to know him. And he kind of gets exploited sometimes or he is limited in the relationships he can have. It's just, it's a real fascinating comic series that you can definitely find in your back issue bins. Moving on in our exploration of the world of comics of the 90s, we have not entered the bad girl era just yet, but it is on its way, right? And so, if you guys remember, bad girls were scantily clad women that were very well endowed. Well, there was kind of a precursor to that back in the 70s. You had Vampirella, but also, apparently, there was uh, a dark horse comic that was coming out called Flaxen. This was reported in the Wizard News section, and Flaxen was originally developed as the logo for the Golden Apple comic book stores in Los Angeles, and the name was chosen by a contest among the store's customers. Then, Susie Owens, former Playboy centerfold from March 1988, was chosen to represent Flaxen as Golden Apple's, quote, living logo at promotions and conventions. Public response to Susie and the character led to the development of the comic book concept and it's I don't, I don't know about this premise because it says it's based on the real life experiences of Susie Owens the model but then it says Flaxen is the superheroine alter ego of Cora Street a dumpy and physically dull nurse although she possesses superpowers Flaxen's main mission is to help people realize their full potential and dreams by developing their own positive qualities she is an in charge positive role model and actually they say even though Flaxen features a beautiful girl as the heroine it is absolutely not a 
sex comic, nor does it feature exploitative camera angles or nudity. It has the look of a standard Marvel-type comic with, quote, good girl overtones. So I guess there was that discussion of good girls and bad girls comics at the time, we just haven't seen it hit full force in mainstream yet. But I just thought that was a really interesting development. It's like, let's design a logo character, then let's turn her into a comic. I don't know if that series lasted very much longer, but we can always look into that in future episodes. So coming up next, we do not, unfortunately, as I mentioned in the main episode, have any type of babe or hunk of the month for me to read, so I cannot compete there with Michael in my uh, my sexy voice reading. But we do have the amazing art section, so I'll just go through a couple of these and we'll be sure to post it on social media along with this episode, so be sure to check out our Instagram or our Twitter. But first up is a green goblin who is atop his glider. You can see he's got a pumpkin bomb he's ready to throw it but his costume is the wizard robe but the thing about this from elisha thurston the third from fayetteville north carolina is the angle on it makes green goblin look really like more puck sized he's kind of tiny in his proportions because you're staring at him from below the glider next is uh an awesome cover, I think, Richard Fournier from Temple City, California, and it's just Wolverine and Psylocke on the cover. But I mean, this is actually some very typical art of the time, I guess I would say. Like, I could see this guy getting work at Marvel. It's very well colored, it's very well inked, and basically... Uh, Psylocke is just putting on a wizard's cap and she's kind of leaning back in a little bit of a seductive pose and then Wolverine's next to her looking up with a cigar in his mouth and he's kind of crouched down got the wizard robe over his shoulder and he's just giving her a thumbs up I guess he's saying the hat looks great (laughs) Uh, next is uh, a cable by Henry Martinez from New York New York now this is a little bit different style than the standard we're used to seeing it just it's got a more realistic quality to it the fun little touch here is that Cable's gloves have the wizard star and their purple on them. Speaking of which, the next one is a very well-endowed She-Hulk. I don't think John Byrne even ever drew her like this, but she's got a wizard swimsuit on from Michael Potter of Tampa, Florida. Next one's very fun. is by Peter Detina of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and it's basically a very cartoony, nice, stylized version of X-Force, and it says at the top, X-Farce x-mentals what the but x-farce was an actual comic that was released so that was a parody book he probably wasn't aware of he thought he had come up with that gag Uh, but still it's a very engaging cartoony style so i like that and now here's a character you did not expect to see it is man thing giant sized or otherwise by j anthony martinez from hartford connecticut and he is pulling the wizard robe out of a swamp and he's just kind of hunched over in his standard look staring at the viewer then we have tony yao from San Francisco, California. He has here Carnage, again, kind of crouched down, looking like he's stalking the viewer, and the guide to comics on the wizard cover is written in blood. He's got the cape, and he's got some claws going through it. Then Rob Siski of Vernon, Connecticut, gives us a very, very intense Solar Man of the Atom. I mean, this looks like it's actually painted. I mean, if he did this with pens and inks, also very impressive, but I think this is a painted cover. It's got lightning behind Solar, and I can't tell, he's got this symbol behind him, 
And I guess it's supposed to be the radioactive symbol, but it's so blocked by all the energy coming off him, it just kind of looks like orange and black in a circle behind him. Next up is a pretty seductive Catwoman. She's sucking on a finger for some reason, got a wizard robe on the other side. But this is before, I guess, the look that would be made famous in just a, a year or two when Catwoman got rebooted because she still has just the ears on top, but no hair coming out the back. And I know eventually Jim Ballant uh, made her famous with that look with the hair running free behind her. And that was by Mark Tenney from Houston, Texas. Then Luis Angel Garza from McAllen, Texas, gives us an interesting Iron Man who looks very manga. He's definitely got a more of a Japanese influence to him, but he's wearing the wizard cape like a Superman cape, and he's pointing at somebody off screen. This is one of the rare occasions where he's not looking at the viewer like they're doing so much here. Next up by Billy Mouse from San Diego, California, a very, very cool Julia Carpenter, where she's grabbing the cape and kind of whipping it around behind her. Got the wizard stars and everything, and she's just got one leg bent up behind her. She looks very cool in the shot, you know, and it, this is one where it doesn't feel so exploitative, right? She's just looking triumphant and awesome. Then finally, we have Stephen Toth gave us very nice Hulk. However, what he's doing is it's almost as if he was wearing the wizard robe as a giant shirt and he's ripping it off Hulk Hogan style, but it's down at his waist. So very nice job, everybody, this month. Hopefully you guys stuck with your art. But one of the things that came up last issue we did not mention was also after the amazing art section they have introduced my kind of hero and the way they explain it is if making your own covers and amazing art wasn't enough for you now you can make your own heroes in my kind of hero send your best ideas so basically people are able to create their own characters and debut them in wizard so in this particular issue there's a guy named hey the wizard warrior created by michael walker in benson north carolina how about that name my Guards. Occupation, keeper of the peace for the 10th quadrant of the now desolate Earth. Citizenship, the planet cries on where most of Earth's population has migrated after the nuclear holocaust. Marital status, none. Base of operations, the 10th quadrant, centered in an area near Death Valley. So, to give you an explanation of what the wizard warrior looks like here, he is very much a barbarian warrior. He's got a, a fur shoulder cloth. I mean, it, it barely covers his pecs. And then he's got a skull belt buckle with a loincloth and he's got a blaster in his hand that he's shooting the wizard hat with and then he looks like he has some sort of staff on his back behind him and he's crouched down but he's he's a little bit more cartoony a little bit more stylized than you'd probably expect to see he's got kind of a mohawk but then a mullet behind him because he's kind of bald around the edges it says here he's seven foot three 275 pounds he's got blue green eyes and he's blonde so here is his origin story Story. My guards is a highly trained mercenary from the planet Kryzon. At birth, a highly advanced computerized electrode system was implanted in his spinal column. The system emits tiny electrical signals to his body that enhance his muscular and neurological structure to superhuman proportions. Unfortunately, this system, along with his arsenal, a laser weapon, six-foot lance spear, visual and hearing enhancer, are fueled by Earth's now abundant solar energy. As 
situation that more or less confines his existence to the barren wasteland of Earth. When the people of Kryzon settled their disputes, there was no need for mercenaries. Therefore, Mygarts and others like him were elected as envoys to police the planet Earth, now populated with convicts, mutants, wizards, sorcerers, and warlords. This definitely looks like a, a Ralph Bakshi type character. Actually, no, I think about it. If he's the wizard warrior, maybe this guy just saw that Ralph Bakshi movie, Wizards, and said, oh, I can make my own character for that. All right, the second and last here is a guy called Twin, created by Eric Treadway. And Twin kind of looks like Zen, the intergalactic ninja, where he's just kind of like a smooth, mouthless character that is bald, and he's got just green hue to his skin and he's wearing kind of a karate gi without pants but then he's got the pirate style boots he's got two different guns in his hand one's a rifle one's a pistol he's got some sort of marking on his brow that looks like a t and also on his arm which i assume stands for twin so this one says his secret i identity is Billy Tout. He's a detective for the NYPD. He lives in the USA. He has no criminal record. That's his legal status. Marital status, single. Base of operations, New York. Height, six foot two. Weight, 230 pounds. Eye color, green. Hey, to match his skin. Hair color, blonde. Oh, well, if that's the case, then now that I'm looking at it, it looks like this may be a bodysuit. You could just barely see a little bit of pink skin coming through the eye holes so okay maybe i just the, the head is so small i couldn't quite make that out so this is a guy's costume he is not an alien my bad but it says here twin has the ability to consciously manifest an identical ghost-like duplicate of himself this copy aids twin in such a way that when the two meld back together twin absorbs the memories and thoughts of his invisible partner this uncanny ability allows twin to have actually been in two places at once that's really just jamie madrock right? I mean, that's the multiple man gimmick. Uh, so I, I don't know that that's super original, except that you're just saying he could just make one. So, okay. I believe also for the uh, Marvel New Universe back in the day, there was a character on DP7 who kind of had a shadow entity that lived inside of him so he could send it out to see things and do things. So it kind of sounds similar to that as well. But you know, there's all these ideas. They're all over the place. That's a fun new feature. I, I don't know how much longer it continues because I don't remember that in later issues. And it makes me think that people maybe didn't want to give up all of their character designs for free. Last thing here, you know, Michael likes to give himself the quiz and we've all had a good laugh at his lack of knowledge here. I'm going to have to up the ante if I'm doing this because in Wizard Magazine, really since the beginning, there has been the comic book intelligent quotient, which is the CBIQ test. And I have never actually tried to take one of these before, mostly because they're 30 questions long. So I'll just do a few of them here. I'll do the first 10. Which Herald of Galactus was created first? A. Terra. B. Gabriel, C. Nova, D. Firelord. I am going to go with Terax, because I believe that Terax was the one that took over after Silver Surfer. If it's not Terax, it's Firelord, so you guys can help me with that. Number two, the superhero team known as the Crusaders are part of what comic universe? 
The Crusaders, I believe, were Impact Comics. The choices here are Marvel, DC, Impact, and Image. And I don't think any of the, the big three now, if you want to put it that way, came up with the Crusaders. Sounds like Impact to me, which I believe was technically under the DC, but what are you going to do? Number three, Predators only hunt on Earth when it's A, all-you-can-eat night at the Sizzler, B, during a thunderstorm, C, during a lightning storm, D, really, really hot. Uh, there must be something if you're reading the Dark Horse Predator comics at the time they would tell you. I will say when it's really, really hot, because maybe their body temperature is preferring to be in a hot climate. That's why that one Predator was in South America in the first film. And then... Oh, that makes more sense, because then in Predator 2, also, there was like a heat wave going on, even though it was just Los Angeles. Okay, number four, Team Titans, the new supergroup from DC, hails from the past, a parallel world, the future, or the negative zone? The answer to that is the future. I know that just really from reading about that in issue 12 when we were going through that. Now, number five, which character died during Valiant's Unity crossover? Magnus, Ray, Eric, or Gilad? And I believe that was Ray because they killed the old Ray and then brought in a new Ray. I know they're launching a new Ray title here in the, in the upcoming issues, so. Six, Clint Barton is better known as A, Hawkeye, B, Crossbones, C, Ant-Man, D, Bullseye. Clint is Hawkeye, unless you want to go with his days as Goliath for that short while. Number seven, in which of the following comics did Batman first appear? A, Batman, B, Legends of the Dark Knight, C, Shadow of the Bat, D, Detective Comics. Well, Michael would be very angry if I didn't know this one. Definitely detective comics. Number eight, Superman's x-ray vision cannot penetrate A, iron, B, lead, C, quartz, D, jelly donuts. <laughs> well, I think we're gonna have to go with lead on that one. Very well known. Number nine, which of the following heroes once shot and killed a terrorist with an Uzi? A, Spider-Man, B, Captain America, C, Quasar, D, Vision. Well, I have no point of reference for that, but I almost want to say it's Captain America and it was like a real harrowing storyline. Because, uh, I mean, I would imagine he's the one running into terrorists the most. We'll find out. Maybe one of you guys can tell us. And finally, number 10, where did Eddie Brock get the Venom costume? A, on a far-off planet during Secret War? B, from Reed Richards' laboratory, C, in an old church, or D, in a deserted alley. Well, he got it in an old church because it was Peter Parker that got it on the far-off planet during Secret Wars, and Reed Richards had it in his laboratory, but it broke out, and I don't know that you can pick up a symbiote in a deserted alley. So, there, I did okay, but even I didn't know all that stuff. Like I say, that's a more heavy-duty quiz. And I thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. We're looking forward to bringing you episodes 13. That's just going to be me and Michael. There's a lot of fun stuff to talk about in that particular issue, so we hope that you will join us then. But last thing, just want to remind you about Wizards t-shirts are now available in our Tee Public store. That's right. You can actually wear our Wizards logo. You know, it looks a lot like the original Wizard logo. So if you can't find a Wizard shirt to wear, why not wear Wizards? Show people what an awesome 90s comic book collecting guy or gal you are. But yeah, go over to public search wizards the podcast guide to comics find our shirts and as i teased in episode 12 if you take a picture of yourself wearing the shirt put it up on social media tag us and we will be sure to contact you so we can send you a special prize pack hey you've earned it if you're going out there promoting the show and sharing your fandom so again guys thanks so much for listening and until next time keep your books bagged and boarded
This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.